1: Hope everyone had a great weekend. Uh, Tonight is shaping up to be a two-part series. Uh, Next week, we will be discussing with Reverend Michael Carter about ways to overcome trauma and uh, processing a very unusual experience of E.T. abductions, uh, patterns that emerge after the event and ways to heal. Um, Tonight's show is going to cover how the people in town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, were traumatized by the Mothman and the Silver Bridge collapse. UFO researcher and host of The High Strangeness Factor and the correspondent for Mac Maloney's Military X-Files, Steve Ward Returns. Joining Steve is psychology researcher Dr. Bill Kusilis. They continue to research the Mothman legacy and they have been researching the effects of trauma of the Moth Mothman eyewitnesses and the Silver Bridge survivors. Hi, Bill and Steve. How are you guys doing tonight?
2: Uh doing good.
3: Doing great. Good. good Mark. Nice Thank to be you. here.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're very glad you're here. Um, you know, when we put this show together, it was to promote the Mothman Festival. Unfortunately. It was canceled, you know, like Thursday due to, you know, the Delta variant uh, concerns. And I feel sorry for the people who make about half their annual salary from this three-day festival. Yeah, uh, you know, there are more people walking up and down Main Street during those three days than live in the rest of Mason County the other 362 days of the year. But there's nothing we we can do about that. Um, just two years in a row of lost opportunities. But um, hopefully night show will continue to generate interest in this fascinating story okay um let's start off by looking at how the eyewitnesses were impacted by their sightings. Um, it's S- Steve, y- you've uh, interviewed Linda Scarberry. She-, she was one of the first four people to report the Mothman. Um, can you give us a little background on her and what your interview was like with her um, it, yeah
2: it, it was very informal uh what uh, jeff Wansley would do and he, he of course is the uh co-founder of the mothman festival and the curator of the mothman museum he uh, uh i think it was uh 2006 that my first mothman festival was the first uh, he he had been trying to get uh, uh linda scarberry and some other people to just kind of sit at the table and uh, allow themselves to uh, be interviewed and, and questioned by the uh, by the, attend- the people that attended the festival. And that was her first year. And I didn't uh, get a chance to talk to her too much then. I think it was the, the next year, 2007. But uh, it, it was, uh, you know, by that time, uh, she had, uh, I th- it felt like she made her peace with it, uh, uh, you know, but she did talk about how Uh, When it, you know, she she she's very firm that, that, you know, that's what happened. They saw this uh, six, seven foot uh, sort of humanoid winged creature with red glowing eyes in the TNT area, which is north of Point Pleasant. And uh, this was uh, November 15th, 1967. And uh, uh, they, it, it scared the heck out of them. This thing chased them into town. Most people know the story. Uh, But uh, afterwards, there was a a, a long interview that Donnie Surgent Jr. did with her, which is in the first book that he co-authored with Jeff Lonsley called Mothman, The Facts Behind the Legend. And uh, she saw this thing again more than once. And she even saw it sort of perched or sitting on a roof across from where she lived. And uh, at the time, she had uh, uh, so many people that, uh, uh, not just Linda, but uh, so many people around that time. That reported this got harassed and, and made fun of, and so uh, she uh, she didn't talk to me much at all about. Have, she had a, she had a nervous breakdown. I don't know much about the details, but uh, it was. I think it was more. My impression was it was more from the way people were treating her in town than the. I mean the, the experience was quitting frightening, and it uh, you know it happened again. More than once. She saw this thing more than once. So, but I, my impression was, and maybe Bill will have more information on that, uh, was that it was the, the harassment that really, really got to her. But by the time I had spoken to her, she was, uh, she was just a great lady and uh, very nice to talk to. I, I remember the last time I talked to her was the, I don't know what year that was. It was the year before she passed. Uh, she was there with Faye DeWitt, who was another witness and i didn't even ask them anything about the mothman i just asked them how their year was you know how things were going mm-hmm. so uh uh yeah she was uh she was someone that overcame a bizarre experience uh and uh and survived it with a lot of class i might want to add
1: when you uh, spoke with her did, did she show any uh, traits of uh, being traumatized like you know, rapid speech or uh, body language you know, like folding her arms across uh her her chest uh you know, um, something uh, uh, like that disorganized thoughts that would indicate that uh, she was getting triggered by um, recounting the story to you?
2: Not, a, not at all. And I, the times I spoke to her, she just seemed to be... Completely at peace and just to really have her life together. There wouldn't have, you know, if, if I didn't know uh, the history and what she had been through, and and the whole sort of folklore and mythos and and uh, of the of the Mothman, I wouldn't have had any clue that she had ever been through uh, such a rough experience. It...
1: Bill, when you know, you have uh advanced degrees in psychology um when we get into studying uh beha- behavior and uh trauma um what what are some of the other traits that uh, people suffering from PTSD may display?
3: That's a great question, Mark. And, and I guess the way that I'd like to speak to that is that, um, as we've spoken about prior to the show, my wife and I and another researcher by the name of Amanda Raber have been interviewing folks who were traumatized by the bridge collapse. In fact, a study that we're working on presently is in and around the bridge collapse and the paranormal phenomena that happened in the Point Pleasant area back in uh-huh. 66, 67. And one of the individuals who we interviewed, who wasn't uh, she wasn't a paranormal phenomena, Experienced her. She was just the bridge disaster. How did that affect her life? Uh, one of the things that she had she had kind of illustrated was that she lost her sister-in-law in the bridge disaster, and her brother was present when the car came up with his wife in the car. Which I can't even imagine what that must feel like. But she was at the time a recent high school graduate, and when we interviewed her and spoke with her the questions that we asked her she was able to answer them pretty pretty readily pretty easily but probably 40 45 into the interview uh, we asked her another question about you know other reflections she may have had on the bridge disaster and i don't know if it was the timing of the question or perhaps because the other questions that we had had allowed her to kind of dig deeper into her subconscious that she recalled an event that she literally woke up like a day or two after they had found her her sister-in-law she she woke up with her brother who had lost his wife the sister-in-law giving her mouth to mouth because she had passed out and she'd stopped breathing now the reason i've kind of, kind of gone at length to describe that that portion of the interview is because that memory had been submerged somehow below, you know, a couple levels of consciousness. And I think that that's one of the areas that trauma can manifest in ways that sometimes when we process things, we're not even consciously aware that there's a memory that's in there. And it might take a little bit to be able to pull that thing back out again because we've had layers of coping mechanisms that we've laid across, you know, as a foundation to our thinking and the way that we process information. And she exhibited that. In fact, we were all kind of stunned when that came out because not everybody just dies in their sleep at 18 years old and wakes up to their brother giving them mouth-to-mouth because she was in shock. And she'd forgotten this. This is something that totally slipped her mind. So, I mean, that's one example of a way that can manifest.
1: Bill, you mentioned... Uh, recall and you know with two events like what 13 months of the Mothman sightings plus all the UFO activity um men in black uh, uh descending on the town uh it, it He's had a bunch of weird stuff going suddenly appearing, and the bridge collapse um, uh, could could be a separate event, or others may argue that uh, they're uh, related. But but with these two events. In your research, and this question might be for both of you, how is recall memory playing a factor in what was reported to you two as well as John Keel and maybe other? Uh, researchers that you've um, been working with or uh, spoken to, Steve, Do you, you mean, want to take
3: that?
2: Well, um, are you talking about people that uh, recognize that they've had some kind of missing time, and then they?
1: Well, it, uh, it, 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 no, it just uh, has. Dealing with Mothman eyewitnesses or uh, someone from the Silver Bridge collapse, have they had uh, um, problems with recalling uh, these events?
2: Not that I'm aware of. No, I haven't. uh... Okay. I've spoken to a lot of people, in, you know, in direct connection to the, some, I mean, I, I've talked to some people that, uh, you know, heard the crash and, uh, you know, told me where they were when it happened. Um, now the, I've, I've spoken to some of the Mothman witnesses and um, I don't, uh, anyone I've talked to hasn't really expressed any problems with trying to retrieve memory that I can think of.
1: Okay, Uh, Bill, how how about you? Have you encountered uh, lapses in memory because of these traumatic events?
3: I think the example that I shared a few minutes ago um, with a witness whose name was Linda, not Linda Scarberry, a different Linda, was the only one that had like a really pronounced episode of, you know, like a submerged memory. And I think that that was trauma inspired from losing her sister-in-law when she was as young as she was. Another thing that Linda had spoken of was that she had literally just gotten off work at 430 and was driving to go cross the Silver Bridge and came upon it shortly after it had fallen. So that was one of those instances where she was shocked because you don't expect this bridge to have gone down. And then she noticed that it has gone down and, you know, you're kind of psychologically coming into what's really happening because it's so outside of your experience. There's no way that that bridge could have gone down. And then you're looking at it and it takes a while to kind of of become, become conscious of that. One thing I would say that you know, with I've not really interviewed Mothman witnesses per se. Uh, One individual of the eight that we've interviewed so far did have a direct experience, but didn't illustrate much trauma from that. But I do think that you know, with Keel interviewing the folks that he did back in the '60s, that there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of time for them to really forget things, unless there were episodes of missing time, which. Obviously, I didn't interview those people back then. John Keel did. But I don't recall him illustrating a lot of instances of missing time or submerged memories due to trauma from encountering this paranormal phenomenon. I, I don't I don't recall a lot of that.
2: There's one incident mentioned in the Mothman Prophecies, and it's a was supposed to have been a prominent town official, but was, he was unnamed. He stepped out on his porch and he saw the Mothman standing there, a the mm-hmm. majestic Mothman. And then he... Uh, and then it leaves, but then he, he realizes he's lost 10 or 15 minutes. So he was in a, a trance or something while this thing was out on his front lawn, and he had no memory of it. And there was never any record of him trying to retrieve those memories. But uh, there was nothing reported about uh, – now, there is – well, you know, there is this. Uh, not only John Keel, but uh, other research, another researcher from Sweden that went in after Keel discovered that a large percentage of people that saw the Mothman – had an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena in their house. Now, I, I didn't talk to any of those guys personally, but if I had an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena for any reason in my house, that could be very traumatic.
3: Absolutely.
1: In the Mothman prophecies, Keel does talk about the lacunal amnesia. Uh, he defines it as loss of the memory of sp- specific incidents or moments in time is a common part of the phenomenon so I just I just wondered if, if there is any uh, I think Keel seems uh, when did he re- uh, write that uh, or publish it, it was like 1975
2: yes the, the- Yeah, prophecies. Well, it was uh, a lot of it was was sort of written. I think he was trying to get something, uh, an interest in it uh, several years before. And when his uh, editor, this is according to Brent Rains and his book, uh, John Keel, the man, the myths Mm -hmm. and the the legends. um, Mm -hmm. He uh, he got out his tattered briefcase filled with uh, articles and writings and so forth. And started to piece it together. So it, some of it, I think, portions of it were probably written several years before, uh, and uh, before he put it all together.
1: But it, it, you know, one of the interesting things about the Mothman prophecies, uh, in the book, is Keel seemed uh, to be very. Um, Ahead of his time, with some of the the research that would later be uh, formulated, r- recall um, so some people do r- remember events more clearly; others uh, do not. He 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 really ha- seemed to have a very good understanding of human behavior
2: well you know he he read everything he read hundreds of books he he said things like if you uh, want to study about things in the sky read about flight read about you know uh, uh flight dynamics read uh if you're studying about uh, Loch Ness read everything about the ocean and, and the water and the things that live in it mm-hmm. Um, let me just a, a quick example here. I uh, a lady that uh, contacted me a few years ago, uh, not connected with the Mothman, but she and her husband had a uh, a missing time experience. They were standing on their front porch. Uh, they saw these strange lights come over, and uh, all of a sudden they realized uh, it was a little bit lighter out because it's been early morning. They're not standing next to each other anymore, and they see this large craft brushing the tops of the trees on their property. So and then a little bit later and then they talk about the amnesia thing. This is kind of a a kissing cousin to it. They said, well, that's that's interesting. They didn't didn't even react to it, Uh, and they went back to bed. Later on, she realized they had missing time, and they both realized, boy, that was a a strange reaction to such a bizarre incident. But long before she 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 did retrieve those memories eventually through a hypnotherapist. But in the meantime. Because of John Keel and the groundwork that he laid, uh, I asked her all kinds of questions because Keel was interested. In, in if somebody had an experience, he knew that he needed to ask uh, about their, their childhood, about, if, find out about things like the uh, 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 mysterious phone calls, electrical interference in the house, classic ghost uh-huh. phenomena. Uh, you know, this, this woman saw... Her family members near the property saw a strange-looking cryptid. They had both her sons were experiencing orb phenomena. She saw a shadow person. They were having haunting phenomena in the house. Uh, so uh, because of Kiel, uh and, and, and some others, uh, Keel advanced this field by a century, I think. Uh, it's just the idea that these things do tend to be connected without trying to, trying to force a connection. So uh uh that's the way I would answer that. Um it, it, it is in that be, it's very important to find out all about the individual and other paranormal phenomena that, that they've experienced.
3: I would argue, Steve, that Keel is still as the things that he <laughs> yes. he did. and the way he went about his research, he was just amazing with the just the volumes of things that he read and the volume of work that he published. And he went so deeply beyond, you know, surface appearances like you just spoke to when he talked to people. I mean, one of his favorite expressions was find out what they had for breakfast. I mean, yeah. r- literally break down to the, to the, in you know, the inane because that helps you to really understand uh, the psychology of the individual and their background
2: and and the other thing is that and I tell this to people that uh it was uh, his book uh, Operation Trojan Horse which came out a few years before Band Prophecies where he really makes that connection and uh I was I, I was not happy with it. I was one of those people that you know there's a lot of people now that don't like Keel because they really really don't like the message. And uh <clears throat> so I I was very happy in the in the 1960s with the idea that these things were Probably ET, and, and you know they were investigating us and uh, examining our planet. And uh, if I if I if I still had that frame of reference when I talked to this lady from New Hampshire, I would have said to her, "Well, they, gee, I hope you make a breakthrough with that hypnotherapist, and and you know maybe we could find out what planet the aliens came from." But I would have missed all the other important things about this particular. Ladies' experiences
1: and somewhat related to what you said a little earlier about all these um, experiences being interrelated. Keel did talk about uh, Morse code-like beeps that came out of uh, car radios, phones.
2: And, and out of uh, nowhere sometimes. I think, uh, it, uh, Bill, I think the Scarberries, right. when they were living in a trailer, they were hearing uh, something like electronic beeps outside their trailer.
3: Yeah, they had so much okay. activity that they back in with, with her parents because it was just freaking them out.
2: And let me give you, give me, give you something else here that might be a partial key to the puzzle. Uh, I was talking to a lady on my show uh, not too many months ago, and she talked about an incident. She was, uh, had a friend over late one night, and one of them heard the sound of a baby crying. Now, the sound of a baby crying when there's no baby is, a, is a, I guess, is a fairly common aspect of poltergeist phenomenon. And, and even sometimes some Bigfoot entities sound like the wailing of a baby, for what that's worth. But the thing is, the other person with her heard beeps at the same time. So what do you mean? I'm hearing an electronic beeping noise. Her idea was, which I think is is brilliant, is it may have been something like signal and noise. But here you've got the baby crying noise and the beeping, electronic beeping noise, which is something that has been reported in all kinds of paranormal activity. Keel collected a lot of it. But I've never heard uh, someone, you know, talk about how two people heard the different sounds at the same time.
3: So that could be in the way that Keel would postulate something like that is the percipient is receiving that information according to their own frame of reference or what have you, because that's the way they interpret it. But it might be the same signal.
2: Perhaps, you know, that, uh, what was it, the uh, Alexa or or whatever, uh, somebody was, uh, there was a name coming over it and people would hear a different name or a different word.
1: Yeah, I I, I, I remember that.
2: Yeah, but i and I, it was funny because people would hear a different something different very clearly, but it's coming over this electronic device and uh it's it has gotta be i guess it's gotta be the way the individual's processing it because supposedly it's objectively coming out of the the uh the device in one particular way
1: well, Okay, well, you know, uh, Keel wrote about it, and I think it, you might have, there, there, there are a few examples from the Betty and Barney Hill case of, of that, uh, beeping sound. I think it was coming from the trunk. Uh but there was also uh Betty and Barney also ex- experienced missing time. And
2: well wasn't Mark, wasn't it uh, uh the weren't the beeps uh <clears throat> sort of bookends to their experience? They heard uh it was sort of like when they were kind of losing uh, when they were started to go into the amnesia section, they uh heard the beeps and then Toward the end, when they're coming out of it, and I think they're driving on the road, and they hear the beeps again, and then Betty says something like, "Well, well, do you believe in UFOs now, Barney?" And he just kind of laughs, and they've had, you know, it's a, it's a point where they really have forgotten this, uh, which was a pretty traumatic experience at the time.
1: Right? The, yeah, the, I believe at, uh, they were driving when they were hearing the beeps. And, it, you know, while I was um, doing some research for tonight's show, um, I was going back through uh, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. And, you know, when he was writing about... Um, um, some of the soldiers that he interviewed in the 80s from uh, World War II, um, he, he wrote, in contrast, those who had been traumatized and subsequently developed PTSD did not modify their accounts. Their memories were preserved essentially intact forty five years after the war ended, so it seems like there are, uh, are times when people do have a very clear recollection and other times uh people do have amnesia and and I think that's you know one of the things that is really intrigued by bill's research was the variety of responses that can be uh, can emerge from some type of uh traumatic event so
3: and I think, Mark, just to speak to that a little bit, I think each each individual processes information just a little bit differently. And so mm-hmm. when we talk about trauma, you know, we, you mentioned that these individuals who were traumatized during, you know, the Vietnam War, essentially. Calm, yeah, combat. Some of them, yeah. It, it could be a different wars, the Iraq War or what have you, that basically they can still recall those memories vividly, as you'd stated, but the, the scary thing about PTSD is that a similar activating incident, I mean, it could be, it could be a car backfiring. It could immediately put them mentally or psychologically back into a place where they were in combat and they have an over-the-top type of a response because they have that, that stimulus still buried within their subconscious and it activates that PTSD situation.
1: So, Bill, as you and Steve and your team put together your question surveys, uh, interviews, or you yeah, know interview questions for people, can, can you explain a little bit about? how you are approaching talking to people for your study.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What what we did, Mark, was we came up with a couple of different research questions. And what those research questions were, uh, then they're put into the form of a question. What is the experience of post-traumatic growth from having dealt with the Silver Bridge collapse? And the second one was, what are the dimensions of post-traumatic growth that have taken place as a result of experiencing paranormal phenomena, i.e. the mothman, the men in black, the UFOs, the, the lights in the sky, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we used those two questions, and then we formulated a number of guiding questions. And what the guiding questions were, the, inter- the, the purpose of those was to open up a conversation with each one of the folks that we sat down with and just basically asked them things along the lines of, you know, what was your daily routine like before the Silver Bridge collapsed? And, of course, we had people from all across the spectrum. We had people who were, you know, eight, nine years old when this bridge collapsed. There were others that were 15, some that were 25 so they all had varying degrees of experience before the bridge collapsed. But then we, we asked them, you know, who, who else was involved? Was your family present with you? And then we asked what happened as, as the disaster unfolded, you know, can you give us a breakdown of what you were experiencing at that point? And then finally, you know, we had a series of questions that was based around the aftermath of of the collapse. And for the folks that wanted to speak about the paranormal aspects we would kind of segue over into similar open-ended questions that were geared more towards, you know, before the phenomena, what was your life like, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty standard formula, you know, for interviewing people in this type of a context uh, to get them just basically, basically to open up and talk to us. And the whole idea is to get their experience. We don't want to you know, interject, you know, what we think could possibly be, you know, what their experience was. We needed to know, specifically from them, in their words, how it affected them.
1: Well, it it, it sounds like it's uh, pretty comprehensive. Uh, there's a before and after section that just, uh, I kind of like those uh, parts of tests or photos. It, it shows some degree of change.
3: One of the, in in speaking of change, one of the things that, one of the questions that we asked was, what, what was your biggest takeaway from going through this experience? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people would have to stop and think. And, And at first, a lot of the times they would say, you know, I didn't see anything positive that came from the bridge disaster. But then they would speak to, well, you know what, the community just banded together and really, really helped one another to deal with you know, this tremendous tragedy that happened in this small community. That was one thing that happened, but it's, it's really interesting when you're working with the individuals because a lot of times they don't stop to think you know, how this has really affected them or to put it into words, and putting things into words the way that what the interviews are designed to do is kind of therapeutic in and of itself too, because it brings some of this stuff out and allows the individuals who went through these difficult times to see the growth that happened as well too. And ultimately that's what we're trying to, to come up with is, you know, what good came from this? You know, and that was just one example was the community coming together.
1: Yeah. And, and I have a qu- question for Steve. Um, you have the Mothman making his debut on the scene in November of 66. And you get all these other uh, UFO sightings. There's just like a whole lot of weird stuff going on at Point Pleasant. Uh, Keel mentions so many other uh, UFO sightings across the East Coast. I mean, there's a lot more to the book than uh, just what's uh, what was going on in uh, Point Pleasant. Um, but, you know, you, Steve, you also uh Observed the uh, 1966 uh, Detroit uh, uh, UFO uh, sighting.
2: Oh yes, it, the, uh, well it was a, yeah, was uh, that a, a flap.
1: Yeah, yeah it, I was, mean, uh, it It's all about the same same time.
2: It, it, yeah, it was just actually a few months prior. That was. Uh, it was it was uh, it wasn't just Michigan. Uh, I was uh, I grew up in uh, southeastern Michigan, and uh, I guess the it was quite a flap throughout the Midwest. But it was the in Michigan it got a lot of publicity, because uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was still attached to Project Blue Book, and while he had uh, begun to uh, believe there was something really to this, uh, he still had to kind of straddle the fence because he was. He had those apron strings tied to the, the Air Force. And uh, he's the one that uttered the infamous phrase, swamp gas. And uh, he, he was suggesting that some of the sightings in Hillsdale, Michigan, might have been caused by that. But that's, you know, all the press needed. And that was, uh, that was uh, let's see, uh, March. And then the following November, this, uh, the first big sighting of the Mothman, even before he had a name, uh, came over the wire services and it went all over the world, and I thought, Wow, that is that cool. Uh, Wayne humanoid chased two couples down uh, down a, uh, uh, a, a two lane highway, and uh, I was just a kid in junior high. But uh, you know, in the wake of all these cool uh, reports and sightings and incredible uh, police officers seeing this, I was. Uh, I think that was uh, that. That's where my destiny was cast <laughs> with the advent of the Mothman.
1: Okay, so um, it sounds like teal was being a very uh, thorough and objective reporter by including all of this... Um, there well, are a couple of places he gets into international um, sightings. But for some reason, in that 66, 67 time period, uh, there just seems to be something going on that elicited... Uh, I, an outbreak, or, or, I don't know, uh, influx of sightings—that might be a better word.
2: Well, they, it, it, there was
1: a it, lot it, of know, stuff just, going on. In, yeah, go ahead. And Well, yeah, and across the East Coast as well. I, I, I was just uh, trying to say something about uh, Keel being really in tune with uh a lot of the unexplained phenomenon or ph- phenomena that was going on that you know, the mainstream is not going to uh, report on but he he was doing it
2: well he was he was pulled into it too and also in uh uh, like along Long Island
1: uh,
2: and near where he lived, there was uh, things going on. There were reports uh, from Minnesota. Uh, he, uh, he, he was, uh, he, when he was interviewed on uh, coast to coast AM with Art Bell, this was when the, the movie had, had first come out. And I think it had been a long time since John had granted any kind of an interview about the Mothman. Uh, he, uh, he he said the one thing he really liked about the film was it really captured the paranoia he felt. And if you guys remember in the book, there's a chapter that says paranoiacs are made, not born. And he got, he was kind of, uh, a lot of this phenomena seemed to center around him or maybe even have been co-created with him. Uh, he thought that perhaps sometimes the phenomena was uh, was shaping itself sort of lead him along or or teach him a lesson and just just really briefly uh, uh, so that people, you you, you keep mentioning how wide in scope this was, Uh, the prophecies part of the Mothman prophecies had to do with a lot of these people he was in contact with, the silent contactees that were getting messages, they, they felt were real messages from the Space Brothers or some kind of other intelligence and sometimes that didn't go well, you know, they they would get some prophecies that came true, and then the big one, you know, the, the, the Space Brothers are going to come down on the hill and take everybody up, and then nobody shows up. Uh, you know, that would be fascinating to follow. I mean, I mean some of those people were uh, just desolated by the, a sense of abandonment when this, uh, this contact or this experience ended and, uh, you know, didn't happen anymore. So uh it, it yeah this was just uh we can just barely barely cover a, a little fragment of this but there was a lot uh a lot going on that would you know fall under I think the uh area of trauma
0: The Mount
3: Misery aspect of the Mothman prophecies is one of the most fascinating parts of the book in my yes. opinion <laughs> and, uh, the portions about J P Peril and uh the the Alleged space denizens Agar and Appall, and the interactions that they have with Keel, you know, over the phone sometime and speaking through Jay Perrow while he's on the phone with with her. That part of the Mothman Prophecies book it just just blows my mind. I mean, it's just amazing.
2: And let's mention Bill that if people want to pursue that, there are two other books out that have uh, probably some of the stuff that was cut out of the Mothman Prophecies. Called the big breakthrough and the big blackout. It, it covers some of the same ground as that area you're just talking about, but there's so much more. And and you're right. That's the uh, that is a, an area of the Mothman prophecies that uh, is you just really can't describe the I don't know the eeriness of the whole thing.
3: And, and you're right. I, I I do also believe that the the ambiance of the movie and I saw the movie before. I knew anything about the Mothman. You know, I, I dove into researching the whole thing after the movie. But the movie itself paints such a such a, a tone of foreboding and almost mystical type things happening, which I think Keel even said that although the movie wasn't spot on to what he did, it really captured the essence and the vibe of what was going on during the investigation investigations.
2: Yeah, Richard Haddon did a really a great job on that screenplay, and I might also add that uh, Brent Rains. I forget I forget the name of the lady. She was a a, a friend of Keel's, and when Keel read this script for the first time, she said he was actually giddy. He thought finally somebody has at least some of the essence of the book because I think there had been other attempts that Keel was very unimpressed with. So and. and uh, uh, so Keel really did seem to be impressed with screenplay and the way that they uh, portrayed the movie.
3: Richard Adam really did get it. He was he did an amazing job with the film uh, because it, it just like I said it captured that whole essence and that whole vibe of what was happening then, even though it wasn't a direct representation of what happened. Right, and you know they couldn't uh, he, he couldn't do the Men in
2: Black portray it probably exactly the way it was in the book. Because of the, you know, in the wake of the silly men in black movies, people would have made that connection, and it wouldn't have been taken seriously.
3: Good point.
1: Since both of you have made the trek numerous times to Point Pleasant and been around Mason County, do you have an explanation for why th- this area is attracting, manifesting, and uh, uh, whatever term? You know, why weird stuff comes comes to Point Pleasant? Is it? The abundance of water, with the confluence of the Kanawha and Ohio River, Keel did mention uh, some of the Native mounds. Uh, Do you have an explanation? Is there something uh, you know, like ley lines related to? The
2: area. Uh, well, Bill, when they, the, one of the first things I thought of when Mark asked that was the confluence of the two rivers. Um, it, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think that maybe there are more of these areas than we think, and there are perhaps that some some of this is more of a natural state. I mean, there are researchers I know that have gone into the uh, the, the, the the type of geography, the terrain, the whether there's limestone or or quartz or whatever that perhaps the uh, uh, bill might have a better idea but i, I think i think it's actually would be is beyond me as to the why a, a particular area you have the uh you know a lot of the uh, uh, the TNT area i guess was a native american burial ground uh a lot of turbulent history but i i don't know i don't know that any of that really uh gives us the why as to this stuff happened there.
3: Yeah, I think there's well, a lot of things we can kind of put together and theorize, you know, that maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I, I do know that in Native American lore that the confluence of rivers is supposed to generate some type of mystical power. I know that there are also are burial mounds that are along the riverbanks, very close to the river where the, the natives had buried uh-huh. their dead. So, I mean, that conducive to maybe the transmigration of, uh, of spirits, along the rivers. I don't know. I mean, to me, it's fascinating. I think one of the things that's really neat about the Ohio River Valley and right there in Point Pleasant in Gallipolis, Ohio, is that it's so different from the terrain. I mean, really just a handful of miles up the road where you start getting into foothills and then mountains. It's totally different than the other areas in West Virginia, at least that I've been to.
1: There is, you know, what sixty miles upriver from up the Kanawha River from Point Pleasant, you do have that high concentration of uh, burial mounds in the South Charleston uh, and Dunbar area, and and. and, yep. there's, and yeah, they're also spread out all the way to the river, and then you know once you get to the high river, you had more um, mounds on both sides of the river. There, I, you know what Bill said about the uh, wandering spirits. Maybe that's very plausible. I, I don't know. I, I I'm I, it's. A very unique area. You, you, know, you really can't get there on interstate. It, it, it's just kind of this peninsula. That's it, out is kind of like by, nearly by itself. It, it, it's just things about the geography of the area are very odd.
2: Well you know, if you continue up river, uh I don't know exactly where the Elk River comes in, but there was another bridge collapse. I don't remember the exact year, it was nineteen oh seven or eight, six, something like that. But it also occurred on December fifteenth, which is quite odd. It was a smaller bridge, uh not a lot of people on it, but some school children died during it. And uh have you it was
3: uh have you been to that that? To that conference? Have you been to that confluence of rivers where that river no, went down? No. I I have not. I have not. And I uh, you you, I don't need, know what I you need to go. you, you, I, I got it. I don't mean to interrupt, but That's we fine. went there. We went there both of the last two times we were in West Virginia, October of last year and then when we were just there a month ago. And <clears throat> the first time that we went to Charleston and we found the the confluence of the rivers. I was pulled to that confluence like nobody's business. I mean, I literally, we got out of our four by four and I got out and I ran to the intersection of the rivers and we had, the ladies had noticed that there were like homeless, uh, tents that were put together, like a tent community of people that were living underneath the bridge. And, and I, I just went running like right to the rivers. And I'm, I'm a guy that's not like really terrified by water but for me to go running towards the intersection of a couple of rivers is weird. Uh, it, it, it's like, it pulled me there, it was really, really bizarre. And we had went and done some ghost box sessions in the vicinity of that area too. And the energy and the vibes that we got from that were off the charts, crazy powerful. I've, I've never experienced anything like it before. There's something going on in Charleston. There absolutely is. Well, there's a, been a lot of reports, uh, uh,
2: in that area, I mean, it's uh, just, just around, I guess, uh, the area kind of north of there used to be call, called Mound, uh, but a lot of the mounds have been destroyed. But, yeah, I think mm-hmm. that there's uh, a lot of – and also, uh, I, I went to a place with uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and John and Tim Frick just a little bit west there, like across Lanes, which is where Tad Jones had that uh, bizarre sighting of sort of a retro UFO in uh, – in the Moth, I, I talked about it in the Mothman prophecies, and we talked to some people in the property there that uh, uh, in this this hour, right near where they lived, they had all you know a, a strange creatures. They had classic UFO sightings, shadow people, and this family was was, was telling they, they were telling us these stories, and they were finishing each other's sentences. It was it wasn't like you know let's uh, uh, let's uh, fool these northern boys uh, you know telling a tale. Uh, they they had for all their lives have been having uh, bizarre experiences there, and the guy's brother wouldn't actually come all the way up to the house because of the, some of the things that had happened there. And it's right near a, a two lane highway, a busy two lane highway. But yeah, you're right. That whole area seems to be alive with some kind of energy.
3: We we literally had the feeling of being lifted out of our out of our foreheads, like where the third eye is. Yeah when we were in in, in that area a couple different times. I mean, it was – I've never experienced anything like that anywhere else that I've ever been. Wow.
1: Bill, what do you think that signifies with, you know, your third eye is – activated you know becomes more observant you know, whatever the term is you know what do you think that is saying about you
3: I think that's a really interesting question um there's there's a part of me that is like Fox Mulder. I want to believe. You know, I absolutely want to believe <laughs> in these different manifestations of paranormal phenomena. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan. And I love you know, investigating things that are unknown. And I like to know where those roads take you. We never quite really figure out where they're going. I mean, you get signals and they're typically scrambled and you get bits and pieces of this and that. And I think you can add them up. But I think that one thing that you have to be really careful of that keel liked to say was that belief is the enemy of truth so when you're really trying to seek out you know whatever answers might be out there i think to go back to your question with with the whole third eye i don't know a whole lot about that aspect of things but it's where the pineal gland is and the pineal gland in my understanding of it which is extremely limited is is it's like your extrasensory perception, like the seeding of your extrasensory perception for those of us that have it. Um, my wife, Jackie, has been practicing uh, psychic exercises lately, and one that was given to her by a friend of ours uh, last week was that you should sit down and visualize a certain area and then you know have your husband, meaning me, place something on the table in, in his office or on his desk, and then you sit down and you draw you know what you see. And so she sits down in, in, in a technique of what I would almost call like automatic writing. She begins to start drawing things as, as she kind of sees them in her third eye, not knowing really what's going on on my desk. And she's done this for the last several days. This is a new practice. She's picking up signals of what's on my desk and drawing like shadows of what's there. And then when she goes and mirrors it and does a drawing of what's actually there, it's there. So I guess my my thought about psychic development and things of that nature. I think we all have the innate tendency to be able to utilize that part of our brains, but so many of us don't stop to take the time to actually practice it and develop it. Um, For me, when I was doing the, uh, the ghost box sessions that we did when we were in Charleston to be able to pick up different vibes and such that I'd never experienced anywhere else. And it tells me that maybe I've got something to do with what's going on but I think that there's really more that's happening within the environment that is inspiring me. And as the perceiver of that or the percipient, then I'm kind of interacting with that a little bit, but not to the degree that of what I experienced, I know that was external. That wasn't something that I personally generated. if, If that answers your question.
1: Okay. Yeah, it does answer my question. It just, you know, slowly becoming more knowledgeable, acknowledging that there is some kind of otherworldly uh, phenomenon in that area. I, I don't know... I, I understand where you're going with it, the, you know, Steve. Would do, do you think Rosemary had an explanation for like Bill's example, or but she she knew John Keel, I believe.
2: Oh yeah, they were a good friends.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, it, 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 Rosemary has also written you know, pretty ex- extensively about um, many other West Virginia um, cryptids and um, anomalies. It, it, did, did she have uh, an explanation that for any of this? Uh, phenomenal. No,
2: actually, yes, she was, uh, and I'm not sure I agreed with her completely, but she was on the track of the jinn, uh, the jinn from Islamic okay. tradition. And uh, <clears throat> there, there is uh, is a lot to that. Um, I think it was Gordon Crichton that first brought up this idea, at least the first Westerner. It's it's a more, if you go toward the east, it's a it's an idea that. Uh, uh, many people have uh, think that UFO pilots and so forth perhaps are gin, and uh, it was uh, yeah. Gordon Crichton uh, uh, introduced the idea in Flying Saucer Review back in the early '80s. The next one to pick up the mantle was um, Ann Druffle, and she talks about the gin in her book called uh, How to Avoid Alien Abduction or something like that. And that's it. Sounds like a, a like a the book's a satire, but it's not. She uh, deals with people, uh, you know, again, a lot of people that are very traumatized by their experience, but they, she's given examples of how they've been able to break the abduction experience, sometimes through righteous indignation or whatever, and she does have a chapter on, on the jinn. and then it was Rosemary that picked up the mantle from then on, and uh, she does make a case that that perhaps this, but, I, you know, I don't know what the jinn are. I mean, are they... Uh, is it the same thing that John Keel was talking about when he used the uh, term uh, ultra terrestrial which was he used it as kind of a literary device. But I think that was uh toward uh toward the end of her life, that was if she wrote a, a couple of books on the gin. Um, she was kind of leaning toward that as, as that being possibly the source. For me, I think that perhaps the uh the source uh is still elusive. And perhaps manifesting as the jinn in some respects and uh, and other entities, other belief systems and other but uh she and, and just uh, the last thing is she uh, actually was investigating several hot spots, and she never revealed where they were, but they I got the impression they were somewhere near the west Virginia Pennsylvania border, so there were two or three areas that she was investigating where a lot of different, hmm. really bizarre things were happening, and she described some of them in her books.
1: Hmm. And uh, was the one on the West Virginia-Pennsylvania border n- near the Kecksburg?
2: That, you know, I, I don't don't know. I just don't know the location. I know that in, uh, she wrote the second book that she wrote on the gin. Gin in America, or something like that? Uh, she gets into some of the specifics of uh, some of just the bizarre. Uh, it's sort of like a like a mini Skinwalker Ranch, just just creepy, creepy stuff. And uh, so, by, what I was wondering is if you know if we if we focus on the gin idea, and Keel, as as Bill pointed out, said belief is the enemy. Is if we focus on any one thing, is the phenomena which is reflective. And mimics our thoughts sometimes. Is it going to shape itself to to that end and to, to kind of lead us along that path of belief? So it's uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a very tricky prospect to try and uh, you know get into uh, t- uh, to hypothesize specifically what it is.
1: Um. Steve, what you were talking about sounds like uh, the subject of egregores, where oh, yeah. the people kind of like think it, and it becomes a real uh, entity,
2: or like like the uh, like the Philip experiment, the famous Philip experiment in uh, Toronto, I guess. With a group of people they were they used a Ouija board, but they meditated on this fictional historical person and it, it sort of came up, came to life the uh the planchette responded to this this person and uh went beyond what they had created uh and of course that's i guess that's close to what we would call a topa as well but there does seem to be that doesn't seem to explain everything but it, it there does seem to be this this reflective factor, this paranormal mimicry. And, you know, you can go throughout the history of UFO sightings and see the way they've kind of shaped themselves over the, uh, the, the various decades. So, um, but then again, uh, I, I don't think that there's one answer to everything. And I've, there's, there's a, few, uh, a few things that make me suspect that at least some of this phenomena is, in fact, some kind of physical flesh and blood other intelligence, whether it be ET or extra dimensional. So uh very hard to sift through all that and figure out you know and, and, and find out what the lines of demarcation are
1: fascinating. Okay. And you also wanted to you know get get into you know, make sure you know we didn't oh uh, don't forget to get, uh, cover the trauma from the actual Silver Bridge collapse. And, Steve, you have had the opportunity to interview Bill Edmondson. To, uh, give us his. Recollection of uh, that day.
2: Yeah, uh, this and this. Uh, when, when I uh, met him uh, with a, a friend, John Lee, we had gone down for the 2017 remembrance ceremony, the 50 year anniversary of the bridge collapse, and they had the oh. ceremony in, in downtown Point Pleasant. They read the names of the 46 people that lost their lives. Well, the next day, this this whole day was. Uh, Talk about serendipity! I mean, it just uh it, i could do a show on how how amazing this day went. We walked down to what was the bridge museum. I'm sorry, the uh, the river museum, and uh, it's been—it it had a fire and they're rebuilding it. But this it covered the the history of the commerce and everything of the uh, of, of the ships and, and and everything that you know went on at the rivers there. And uh, it was b- beautiful models, and, and they had a, a, a mock-up of the silver bridge and showed you where the 13th eye bar was that failed. But we so we, we just, you know, I had never been there. So we, we decided to walk down. This incredible man, uh, he was there with the support of his family. He came up from North Carolina to show his, uh, pay his respects for those who had died uh, on, in, on, the, on the bridge. He was uh, 88, which means he was 38 when he was crossing the bridge. He was hauling material uh, to be taken to Detroit, so he was coming from the West Virginia side to the Ohio side, and it was going to a tire plant. That's what he was hauling. And, uh, and he told us that now you have to picture this. It's December 15th, it's almost 20 below. The sun's almost down. The bridge that was built in the 20s, which was not meant for this kind of traffic, uh, is, uh, it's, it's filled with rush hour traffic, and Christmas traffic, and so he told us that if you can imagine the span of the bridge, all of a sudden it started wobbling back and forth, and it tipped so far that he had to hold on to the steering wheel to stay in place, and then everything gave way. His truck hit the water. He was forced through the passenger window, uh, right arm first. He showed us he still was not able to straighten out his arm. He had a, a pin in there. He, uh, he went through the window. And the, the good news was that the, the currents, were, uh, he went to the bottom, but the currents were pulling him up. But to the force of hitting the water, his pants were pulled down. And they, they didn't fall off because, if you remember what 1960s pant cuffs were like, they didn't clear his shoes, which is almost comical except debris from the bridge or the truck or something hit, grabbed his pants and started to pull him back under. So he had to, you know, just imagine this, the frigid temperatures of the water. You think you're getting to the surface, and he's pulled back under. He finally kicks himself loose. He comes to the surface. There's a, a bunch of this this uh, material that he was hauling is floating on the water, right arm useless, his left arm he puts to a slit in this material. And, you know, they talk about the, the, the theme of trauma and what, what goes on in your mind when this happens. He looks up at the top of this massive material, and there's a bird perched up there, which he assumed, you know, had it probably had her nest under the bridge and is just as, as uh, re, you know, discombobulated as he is. And they're kind of looking at each other, or at least he was imagined, imagining the bird was looking at him. And then, fortunately, now, now the, uh, everybody that had a boat or was out there on a boat mobilized and, and to, to save people, pull people up out of the out of the water. And uh, you know, people were coming to the surface, some people never made it. And a t- fortunately a tugboat captain spotted Bill, intercepted his flow downriver, and pulled him up <clears throat> out of the water, probably moments before he would have died of hypothermia. <clears throat> so what a story, you know? And uh I I'd never heard anyone tell a story like that and, and, you know, one on one.
3: That's amazing.
1: is did, did did bill have a like a survivor's guilt you know he,
2: he didn't didn't really express it but you know he's he was faced with you know why me why was i spared and he, you know he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't unscathed obviously and they uh, rushed him to the hospital they put heat on him he's in he's mentioned in one of the articles one of the many articles that Jeff Lansley has uh, has portrayed in the museum which is just the museum is so well done uh one postscript to that uh apparently he you know that that event didn't stop him from driving for at least for a while 5 years later he was in a terrible truck accident he was not hurt physically too badly, but he was trapped in the cab of his truck for three hours. And he said, he swore if he ever got out of this, he would never drive a truck again. And he never did.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: But apparently that, that first experience wasn't enough to, uh, to stop him from, uh, you know, being a truck driver.
1: Um. Keel does talk about, towards the end of the Mothman prophecies, that uh, many people had to be treated for shock. I mean, it, it really just seems like It was a situa in nineteen early nineteen sixty seven. It was almost like the Twin Towers type of scene where all the bystanders were aghast at you know, the bridge, just it was no longer there. And you see all this stuff going on uh, in in the river.
2: Well, you remember the chapter in uh, that chapter that he deals with the bridge collapse. I had read it several times, but it wasn't. And I was down in Point Pleasant in uh, briefly in 1977 to see the area. But after I had been there in 2006 of the first Mothman Festival and, uh, you know, met the people and then when I reread that chapter, it, cert- it just had a different, uh, It certainly had a different flavor. Uh, can I ask Bill a question? Um, sure. Uh, you know, when we, we talk about this, and I think, you know, we, <clears throat> Carolyn Harris, what, how, do you, how do you assess her, this, this great lady that suffered great tragedy with losing her little boy on the bridge collapse, yet years later she's instrumental in bringing this festival to town to help revitalize the community. I mean, what an amazing
3: lady. You know, Steve, thanks for bringing that up because, honestly, Carolyn is the inspiration for the study. I mean, she absolutely is. Jackie and I traveled to Point Pleasant the first time, and as far as we knew, probably the only time that we'd ever go uh, back in 2016. And we had the opportunity as we pulled into town. Uh, It was after 5 o'clock on a Friday night. And the Mothman Museum was closed and we didn't know anything else about Point Pleasant except for the T and T area and that the legend occurred there. But we we walked across and Jackie was a postmaster, so the post office is right across the street. So she's in the process of scouting that out. And then she looks across the street from the post office and there's a little restaurant there that says Harris's Steakhouse. And there's a little old lady who was standing in the in the window, and she she was looking out, and Jackie was looking in, and Jackie said to me, I think that lady wants us to come in and talk to her. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, maybe, I guess we're in town here, we're 500 miles away, the museum's closed, we don't know anybody, let's go say hello. So we began visiting with Carolyn, and I'm not kidding you, we were in town for five days the first time. We went to her restaurant every single day. She was the warmest, friendliest, most conversational person. When you sat down with Carolyn Harris, you felt like you were sitting with your grandmother or somebody, you know, who basically was family to you. And it it felt like that with her immediately. So I think to answer your question, Eve, Carolyn lost her son, three years old, and her ex-husband in the bridge disaster. And she embraced the community. She made her restaurant a safe haven. If people didn't have money to pay for their dinner, she would give mm-hmm. them dinner for free and say, hey, pay me back when you get a chance, or if you don't, don't worry about it. She was just a loving, caring, giving, warm person, and she is, to me, the epitome of what we're studying in post-traumatic growth because I can't even imagine the pain that she felt. Timmy wasn't the only child she lost. She lost another child as well, so she lost both of her kids at very, very young ages, yet she turned her life almost into a mission to help put Point Pleasant back on the map and, and, and welcome people from all over the world to that little community and, and just look at what she's been able to be a part of. So, I mean, I, I, to me, she's amazing. I get chills talking about it. Uh, I just loved her. In fact, Steve knows this. Uh, we met Carolyn in 16, and on Christmas Eve, we were headed to my mother-in-law's for Christmas Eve dinner and I told Jackie because Carolyn had given us her phone numbers I said let's call Carolyn let's see if we can interview her and and maybe do a book about her story the next day she had a heart attack and the next day she died so I was crushed we were both heartbroken but since then we've returned to Point Pleasant largely because of what she inspired in us and that's where our study has come from, is, is her. I mean, she she was just a wonderful, wonderful, warm person. I'm so grateful that I got a chance to know her for a few days.
2: It was like uh, walking into mom's kitchen at home every time I walked into a restaurant. Mm-hmm. It,
1: it, Bill, with... Um a total of 46 people who died all of a sudden what have you learned about how such a a, a large loss of sudden loss of life has on just like one of those Small river towns, and you know, probably you know a lot of people uh, make their living through uh farming uh, uh you, know, it's, you know usually uh places like that are you know f- fairly close knit communities uh, how does such so, uh does a community deal with such a large loss of life?
3: They just they just banded together. They just came together. The folks that we interviewed <clears throat> talked about the overwhelming nature of West Virginians and basically said that if there's somebody who's going through something, there are a half a dozen other somebodies who are there to support them. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we learned in our interview process from two or three of the people that we talked to was that there was a young boy, I mean, a really, really young boy, like a year and a half old, who had lost a significant portion of his digestive tract. And the, the only way he was going to be able to have a life that was somewhat close to normal was if another child were to lose their life, but be able to donate the organs that this guy needs. And these three folks that we talked to who brought this up to us just talked about the overwhelming support that the community gave to the people you know who were there and needed it and this little boy included and, and another, you know, another dimension of post-traumatic growth that's emerging from our study is, you know, spiritually, it's people having a, a faith in a higher benevolent being, you know, a God that takes care of them. <clears throat> and then their, their faith, the way that a couple of the folks illustrated how it had grown as a result of you know, witnessing what happened here. And, and I got to say that one of the guys, probably was the most powerful interview that we did, was a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Wedge. And Jimmy Wedge was the basketball coach. His first head coaching game, the night the bridge went down, and he knew his mom was going to come to the game, but he didn't know his dad was coming in from out of town to surprise him at the game, and they both lost their lives on the bridge. And so he illustrated to us so much of this. I mean, this guy is so resilient. It's unbelievable. He's served a couple terms in state Congress and done all kinds of neat things in his businesses. And he's 79 years old, and, and he just was a delight to interview. So the positive attitude that he had as a result of, you know, going through that trauma of losing both parents and having to have, like you mentioned a couple times, Mark, that survivor's guilt. Here he is, mm-hmm. you know, performing as a head coach for the first time Mom and dad are coming to support him. Mom and dad don't make it. But still, what a wonderful story he had.
1: You know, Bill, what you were saying about uh, a greater sense of spirituality um, in uh, Jeff's uh, The Facts Behind the Legend Uh you know linda does uh talk about she had this need to discuss it with a minister and then uh, just just to give listeners a preview about next week's show is uh you know michael's going to be talking uh, about some of the uh traits that emerge after uh, uh, an experience of some unexplained nature. And one of the changes that uh, frequently happens to someone is that there is this sudden need to Serve humanity, uh, you know, do do something for the greater good, you know, like one of those types of uh, philosophies. And uh, you and Steve did uh, talk about uh, Carolyn uh, Harris. And you know, if you could pay, that's great. If you can't, uh, next time you're in town, you know, hopefully you could pay your bill. But uh, she seemed to have this, that type of uh, experience after the bridge collapse. So, you know, I think we are seeing a little bit of a pa- yeah, this pattern e- emerging.
2: Yeah. Just up one. Oh, go ahead, Bill.
1: Well, I was just going to point out one
3: other thing here, and then I'll pass it back to you, Steve. Um, resilience. You know, if I can get through this, mm-hmm. you better believe I can get through that. And just the strength that it gives people, that, that inner, you know, fortitude, be able to, to having navigated, this horrible catastrophe that you can be there for others you can help others as they go through it which which helps you to grow and like you mentioned that giving back is just it's huge it's just huge
2: and one thing that occurred to me is uh Bill when you were talking about well the resilience and the way that that uh, everybody came together to support everybody after this tragedy um uh, Carolyn's building was uh, not exactly up to code, but the the inspect, building inspector that came in knew what a force she was for the community. And I wish I could remember the specifics of the story, but they, he, they did whatever they could to make sure that Carolyn would pass. I mean, they weren't letting go a any kind of a dangerous situation, but, I guess you could say they weren't dotting every I and crossing every T because they wanted to make sure that Carolyn, you know, stayed in business and didn't have to pay out a ton of money because she was not a wealthy woman, and here she's giving, you know, so much to the community and such a, a great support to the community that even the, even the, 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 the dastardly building inspectors were being kind and supportive.
0: Hmm.
1: Bill, is, you know, Steve mentioned that um, the eye, uh, eye beam, eye bolt, uh, you know, there's a, a replica of one at the Mothman Museum but and you we know there is a uh, structural failure and you know, there's too much uh, modern traffic on a older bridge and you know that seems to be the most plausible explanation uh the they said there was a man. defect
2: in the in the thirteenth eyeball. that was it was a, it was a yep. manufacturing defect that I guess was sort of laying in wait. Uh, but uh, but you know it, something very positive came out of this. And uh, when when they had the remembrance ceremony, they had somebody speak to the the fact that this had been the worst bridge tragedy in history, and it changed the way everybody looks at uh, these bridges and the regulations and so forth. And it's likely that because of the uh, of the attention given to older buildings and new construction, it's very likely that many other tragedies have been presented in the wake of the uh, Point Pleasant tragedy. So at least you know you've got uh, another story of some you know positive coming out of a negative, in and, and similar in the way that that uh, Carolyn and, uh, and Jeff Wansley created a Mothman festival, even though. It's history, you know, the the Mothman and and the stuff that went on, even if there's no direct connection in in everybody's psyche, the bridge collapse and everything else is connected, even though I, I don't believe the this Mothman apparition, whatever it was, caused the bridge collapse. It doesn't matter. It happened in that same year. And that's all, you know, all it takes to sort of put them together in one's mind.
3: And to kind of piggyback on that, Steve, the the prophecies that Keel received of basically a chemical plant blowing up, those were the things that he was was thinking was going to be the major disaster that was going to take place on the Ohio River. From the information he was receiving, he just wasn't able to put two and two together and figure out where the bridge was going to go.
2: And remember the silliness of the – and the thing is, Mark, all these prophecies were coming together from people that didn't know each other. And it was going to be some kind of an EM effect, whatever that meant. And it was going to happen. Finally, they said, "Well, it's going to happen December fifteenth. President Johnson's going to light the the Christmas tree lights. There'll be three days of darkness. I think maybe the Pope was going to be assassinated or whatever." So, uh, but at that, almost that same moment, that's when the bridge collapsed. So it was just this is you know bringing it back into the the high strangeness, the paranormal. You get this. You get a warning, but it's like the trickster did it. They they gave you the wrong warning. They were you were looking in the wrong direction. Something's going to happen, but you know. And and again, like uh, Bill said, Keel thought a chemical plant was going to blow, and uh, you know everybody's looking in the wrong direction. So you know that that's really frustrating. What does that mean? What does that tell you about the whole the whole scope of this thing?
0: Okay,
1: and. Yeah, the, that uh, Willow Island cooling tower happened uh, about te- a decade later uh, up the river. But, you know, th- uh, there was uh, a huge accident uh, just not r- related to this. 1966, 67 uh, time period, but in in the course of your research, is there a, a similarity or difference in the way? people uh process trauma uh is there a better re- recovery rate if the experience was man made versus a natural disaster because you know we do have you know, uh since, since you know, I live in the same river valley you know de- dealing with uh catastrophic flooding uh you know, those stories from the thirties uh still are around today um but it, 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 uh you know like the johnstown flood uh, happened happens uh, they about three hour drive from me uh yeah you know, that's still uh hundred and thirty Years later, it's still one of those uh, regional disasters that is uh, uh, discussed. Um, is there difference in the way people respond to man-made or natural disasters?
3: You know, I think we talked about that a little bit last night, Mark, when we were getting to know each other, and uh, there's a there's a terminology for that known, known as the shattering of cognitive schemas. It's the way that we interpret the world. So regardless of whether or not it's a man-made trauma, like let's say the Twin Tower disaster, or if it's uh, the Silver Bridge going down, which is not necessarily a natural disaster, kind of in the middle of a natural disaster and a man-made thing. It's it's a man-made component that that failed, or maybe it's the tsunami and things like that happen. You know, when we talk about the bridge itself, and you use that as an example because that's primarily what we're talking about. I'm going across this bridge. You know, I'm maybe 35 years old. I've been across this bridge for the last twenty years almost of my life driving a car and mom and dad took me across it even before that on a regular basis. I have no reason to believe it's gonna collapse. I have no reason to believe it's gonna fail. That's just not not even something I can even process or even think about processing. So when it actually does happen, and let's say that I'm this lady Linda who I was talking about earlier, as she approaches it, the reality of the situation manifests slowly. At first there's the shock. Where's the bridge? You know, I know this bridge. I can depend upon this bridge. I also go over this bridge. Then the bridge is gone. And it dawns on you that the bridge is gone, but you're trying to make sense of what that might mean. And then you start thinking, wait a second, there probably were people on that bridge, and now all of a sudden emergency crews are coming. People are in danger, people are dying. And as this is dawning on you, I don't know that there's a big difference between, you know, a man made disaster or if it's an earthquake, because I mean, to me, if it's your cognitive schema, if it's your way of perceiving the world, and this is outside of that reality, then the trauma itself, it's going to manifest. I think in a similar way. I think I think it's going to manifest in a similar way, regardless <laughs> what man made or not.
1: Okay. I, no,
3: I, I wonder. I'll, oh, go ahead.
1: No, no i now, I, I, good, Steve. I'll, I'll make a comment okay, after just, your uh, rejoinder. Uh,
2: all right. I just wondered, Bill, if, if it's a situation where it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a man-made disaster, but it's due to negligence or some faulty construction. It, you know, yep. that, and there's blame. And that's that, that kind of another component where it's not just uh, happenstance. It's not a tsunami. It's not unforeseen. You can actually point in the direction of, of the guilty party
3: and I was thinking that too as I was trying to explain that and understand it myself because I think if there is somebody to blame then you can objectify what happened and you can you can say right. this is the cop and now now how dare you mess up my life like this you took my loved ones away from me so that's right. a whole different level of you know processing trauma and understanding the disaster
1: mm-hmm. and, and I think you, two have done a terrific job of, you know, recreating this horrific scene um, helping us to visualize uh, all of a sudden the bridge is there and then it isn't, uh, how people responded people uh, got out uh to save lives and uh uh boats uh promptly um but it, uh, from what i understand th- uh, there were um, two bodies that were never recovered um That's right it, it, yeah them yeah that's another aspect. It just uh there's not a there was not a closure for uh two families which uh makes that scene uh, it just it, even more uh devastating I I, yeah. I don't I, I don't know how that type of trauma could be overcome. Uh, yeah, that that would have to be very difficult, and that might. Well, be-
2: there is another. Go ahead, Mark. I am sorry.
1: Oh well, I was just going to say uh, maybe that's why it, the. Um, reading of the names at at the uh world trade center uh, memorial service is uh, so powerful is so many people were never found
3: one of the people who lost their lives in the silver bridge disaster was a, a girl by the name of kathy bias And um, I actually have the Images of America, Silver Bridge Disaster of 1967 book right here with me. I literally read this this evening before we got on show here because a couple folks that I interviewed talked about Kathy Bias. What I didn't know about her and having never been found uh, was that I think her mom and a sibling were also lost in the bridge disaster. They did recover them. So I think, yeah, absolutely, absolutely how horrible that would be to never, never find that little girl's remains. I just think that what an open-ended wound that would be for forever, really.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and, and I think that's one of the, you know, seeing the newspaper articles in in the museum, it's, it's interesting. Some of the displays are a lot of fun but you know there's also the the, the video of the uh, movie and, and it, it really does uh hit home of, about the the trauma the town experienced But you two have given many examples where people uh, uh, are resilient uh in the mason county people are resilient and you know just uh humanity can overcome uh, these types of um, just terrible disasters
3: you know i could uh to add to that Mark, um, when we talked to Jimmy Wedge, you know, Jimmy talked about another way to he, he, one of the questions we asked him was, if counseling services were available back then, do you think you would have sought them out? And his answer was no. He said, because I had family. I had brothers and sisters. I had community members. I had friends. We talked through this stuff. We worked through this stuff together. You know, that, that's one of the things we did. And uh, that it was just it showed to the resilience of the community. And I think that one of the things that Jackie and I noticed five years ago, the very first time we went to Point Pleasant, was that people not only were kind to one another, they were really kind to us. And we live in the greater Chicagoland area where, I mean, if people aren't trying to cut you off on the highway, they're not really talking to you. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it we're there in that area of West Virginia than it is where, where we live in uh, the community is just so, I mean, really blessed to have that type of cohesiveness because you don't see that in other parts of the country as as prevalent as you do there. One thing I I did want to share with you guys also and and with the audience is that in the interviews that we did, the most vivid memory that came out to, to many people that we interviewed was of that man who was on top of the trailer as it was floating down the river and approaching the, the confluence of, of the Kanawha and the Ohio Rivers. Uh, that, that was a vivid, vivid memory that these people, I mean, some of them said, you know, I don't, I don't ever even, there's not a day that goes by that I don't picture that, or that I don't think of the bridge disaster in general, which is just really pretty powerful. Well, do you guys remember the opening scene
2: of the Mothman prophecies where a very tired John Keel is catching a whale of a cold and uh, he and Mary hire the car has gone off off the road. He's trying to find uh, a phone so he can call the tow truck. And there's a, a couple that comes to the door and sees this man dressed in black with a beard. They're very out of place in that area. And he talked about how uh, they, this couple, they perished on the Silver Bridge. And that uh, it became an element of folklore. Well, for the longest time, I thought John Keel just used that as a literary device. It turns out not. There's an interview in, uh, I think, one of the John Keel collections called, called The Great Phonograph in the Sky, where I forget which who's interviewing him. It's one of the old interviews that where he actually came across that piece of folklore when he was in West Virginia one time. And it turned out he was the one that created the folklore. And, in fact, these two people whose name he didn't remember did perish on the Silver Bridge.
3: But we don't know who they are, Steve, or do you know who no, they
2: he, are now? No, he, he no i don't, do not know who they are he, he They were asked him, and he said he did not uh know who the who it was i just uh, all those years I thought that keel was just using it as a a literary device to open the uh the book, and what he was doing was is showing how sometimes very mundane ordinary things can be misinterpreted as some kind of a, a you know bizarre paranormal experience um mm-hmm. So I just uh, I just thought that was uh, fascinating that it was in fact real and did piece of folklore in that part of West Virginia.
3: I'm going to have to dig and try to figure out who that married couple was.
2: Right, there must be a way because they it would have been somebody that lived back in those hollers there down by uh, probably about, around uh, around Ferry, you know, down south there along <laughs> Route Two or maybe 35.
3: I don't think that there were that many married couples who both died in the disaster. You know, that's, I think that's, that's, boy, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, the first one that comes to mind are Jimmy Wage's parents, but I don't wow. think it was. Done. Right. Okay. Uh,
1: j- just to, you know, kind of change topics a little bit. uh, as far as I know, the Van Meter Visitor Conference is still going on. Yes, and, and
2: that is uh, the last weekend. It's always the last weekend in September, the weekend following the Mothman Festival. Um, and it commemorates the, the Week of Terror, as uh, Chad Lewis calls it, as he takes you on the walking tour through town, with a very strange uh, winged creature that was seen... In 1903, in Van Meter, Iowa, which is just west of Des Moines. Okay. And then uh, the next weekend, I'm going to be—I I'm going to be speaking at the Bray Road Conference in Elkhorn, uh, Wisconsin. And uh, oh, I'll be, I'll be talking about the Shaver mystery at the uh, Van Meter Conference, which is a whole other story. Very, very interesting period of, uh, of history. Uh, amazing stories: Ray Palmer and Richard Shaver. And then I'll be talking about uh, the paranormal aspects of cryptids at the Bray Road Conference.
1: Okay, yeah. with uh, uh, you're familiar with um, the Van Meter uh, flying humanoid, you know, with the week of terror that the town's people. Experienced in 1903, was there any kind of overlap with um, how the Point Pleasant uh, citizenry reacted uh, 63 years later? I was kind of looking well, this for, yeah, is there like a, a normal. Are we seeing, yeah, you know, just typical norm, normal human behavior with, with unusual yeah, well, circumstances
2: with with shotguns? Uh, this was the actually several prominent people in the town saw a very small town. Uh, this was more of a more of a pterodactyl kind of a creature, but you know, in keeping with with uh, John Keel and his uh, I don't know transmogrifications of energy, this thing seemed to have a it had a beak and it seemed to have a, a light on the, on the end of the beak or a horn on the beak. And also there was one case where it seemed to, uh, to exude a vapor, insert your own joke there, but the, the, uh, the witness actually lost time or was in a trance or something like that. So here you have a, a creature that strangely manifests a light, and there's missing time involved. It's you know there are humanoid reports there are other types of creature reports that have some of the same manifestations uh, missing time and some kind of a light either they're holding the light or a light on their chest it's been suggested that perhaps the you know as Keel thought the manifestation may not be the most interesting thing we have to find out the cosmic mechanism behind these manifestations so it's a very uh, uh, you know, it just it just lasted for about a week. Uh, a, a, a bank, uh, a guy that became the bank manager saw it. He was he was waiting in the bank one night because they saw this light on top of the uh, building. They thought it was a robber at first, and he they, a couple people blasted at this thing with shotguns, and uh, it didn't affect it. It's it's a very uh, it's kind of like the the early uh, uh, beginnings of the Mothman Festival. Great people there, just a really phenomenal time
1: it is it, every once in a while you read uh about these cases uh like there's a light you know the mothman's uh red eyes uh what you were talking about the some kind of glowing uh from the van meter uh der, uh right when you and Zelia were with us last, I think Zelia was talking about um, um, the Flatwoods monster kind of had like a glowing head. It's a, yeah. yeah, there's like this kind of like a element of the bioluminescent creature um, what's the deal with that?
2: I I, I don't know the uh in Ording, Washington, uh, Sally Shepherd Wolford, who wrote Valley of the Skookum. She's uh the mother of the famous uh, Bigfoot researcher Autumn Williams. They saw what looked like flesh and blood bigfoots, but they also saw bigfoots that seemed to glow at night and sometimes they seemed to be translucent. Of course there have been, you know, 7-foot silver humanoids that have, were also translucent. So uh, I don't know, there's a, there's a high strangeness component to so many of these things uh, that you know, some of the patterns show up and perhaps we shouldn't be so, um, I don't know, maybe it's not even worth categorizing what these things look like. You know, if you get into the, the literature, there are hardly any, in quotes, spaceships that look the same. A lot of the entities, at least before the graves showed up and, and, you know, messed up everything, we used to have some pretty cool entities back in the old days. And uh, a lot of them didn't look much the same, except maybe they were a little short, but there were also giants. So I I don't know, Mark. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a component that uh, Keel tapped into. And it's just that, that that high strangeness factor uh, that seems to permeate through all this paranormal phenomena. Uh,
0: It's,
1: just really fascinating. I think mean, it's one of the it, reasons it really why Yeah, you know, I, I, I've i really gotten more into cryptids recently in the last few years than other topics. It, it's um, something I, I, I just find really uh, uh, captivating. And, and you know, it,
2: it's something that It occurred to me here that all of us here is there any way you could stop we could stop doing this and do something else I mean absolutely not (laughs) it doesn't matter how frustrating it gets or how many answers we don't have there's just no way
1: now I there's just something about uh, the cryptids that is um Really put the hooks into me. Um, You know, you get the uh, was it the behemoth from the Book of Job? Uh, Some of these other uh, native petroglyphs. You have to wonder uh, what were they seeing. There's just a a long documentation of animals that um, don't have a modern-day explanation. Had uh, some uh, dinosaurs survived up until a more recent time well,
2: look at some of the Nessie-type creatures that aren't just in Loch Ness, but they're in lakes all over the place, including uh, mm-hmm. there have been some classic sightings, credible sightings in lakes in Ireland that are only as big as a football field and maybe 20 feet deep. How, how do a colony of these things survive there? You get this paradox. You get, you get the, the paradox with the Mothman. It didn't always flap its wings. It, it just didn't, biologically didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense as an apparition either. So what the heck was it?
1: And, and Linda says in her uh, interview with Jeff that uh, the Mothman had kind of like human, super human characteristics like telepathy –
2: I, I don't remember that she, she felt like she had some, I, I know, I know she felt, uh, I know in one interview, she said she felt sorry for it. It was like it was, it was kind of lost or, or something. So
3: perhaps it that's where different. the telepathy came. Oh, go ahead though. I was just going to say in shivering and cold, she said that she felt that it had yes. its wings around off on top of a roof and it was
0: cold. Uh, on page
1: 33, um she says to Jeff, uh, the Mothman was smart and knew how to clo- how close to get to people as to not get hurt. I wanted to talk to it and find out if I could help it. And it seemed to know that it kept showing up to me.
2: Here, this lady that was scared to death by it had empathy for it.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. There, yeah, there seemed to be some kind of two-way communication. They, 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 they seem. There seemed to be some kind of mutual understanding. So, fascinating subject.
3: It sure is.
1: Okay, we're, yeah, we're getting close to uh, wrapping up the show for tonight. Uh, do you two want to uh, say how people can get a hold of you, uh, websites, anything like that, uh, upcoming appearances?
3: Go ahead, Bill. Sure. Well, uh, we were going to be presenting at the Mothman Festival, uh, my team, which is known <laughs> as Phenomenology Research Partners. Uh, we can be found at dot And on Facebook also, I I also have a Facebook page, uh, Bill Kousselis. That's Kousselis with a K. Um, And uh, we we welcome inquiries. We're also looking for additional subject matter. When we complete our study uh, on post-traumatic growth in the bridge disaster, we're going to be looking into other areas also. So, yeah. And, Mark, thanks for having me.
1: uh, We're going to have to do this again. All right, Steve, you want to...
3: And I think
2: some uh, of I us are going to be making, making the pilgrimage down to uh, Point Pleasant on that weekend, even though it'll just be, it'll be that many people. I already mentioned uh, Van Meter and, uh, and the Bray Road Conference. Uh, I'm, I'm on the High Strangers Factor on the Paranormal UK Radio Network and a correspondent on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files on the same network. I have a Facebook page called The Phantom Menagerie. Great to be here. I'm great to be here with everybody. This was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, Yeah, thank you. It 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 was very uh, thought-provoking and And, and a little bit emotional. I have to say, yeah, it it was a touching memorial to um, the people of Mason County. And anyhow, um, thank you again, and uh, appreciate everyone listening. Thanks, Barbara, and we'll see everyone next week.